Hello and welcome to episode two of the Bible and Me podcast. In this episode, Gavin Calver, director of mission for the Evangelical Alliance and former director of Youth for Christ, talks to Nigel Watts about his journey of faith and God's redemptive path for him. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speaking and may not represent the views of Precept Ministries UK. We hope and pray that this podcast will bless you in your walk of faith. If it does, leave us a rating or review and subscribe for more podcasts every Friday. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, welcome to the Precept Ministries UK um, Bible and Me podcast. I am thrilled to have Gavin Calver with us today, uh, formerly CEO of Youth for Christ mm. and Director of Mission for the Evangelical Alliance. Um, helping to mobilize mission across England. And I believe that you're passionate about uh, seeing the local church fulfill its calling to take the gospel of Jesus into every community across the country. Uh, you are a theology graduate. You are an ordained evangelist, uh, a regular public speaker. And uh, recently you have been appointed as the chair of the Spring Harvest Planning Group. Mm. You are married to Anne. I believe you've got two kids. Um, and you are a sportsman, enjoy yeah. sport, yeah. a man after a moon heart, yeah. and you support something to do with Wimbledon. Not yeah. quite sure what that is. AFC Wimbledon. AFC Wimbledon. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the programme today. No problem. And um, Gavin, just a simple question. How did you come to faith in Christ? That's a good question. I grew up in a Christian home, very Christian home. My parents were fairly well-known Christians. My, uh, my Christian background and heritage was a certain pressure. If we put that in context, my granddad started Tear Fund and my dad started Spring Harvest, so I really needed to come up with a good idea. But um, that put some pressure on me that pushed me away from church, if I'm honest. I felt, saw Jesus as like an auntie figure, someone I knew existed but wasn't that interested in hanging out with. And Went after football, nearly made it as a footballer, didn't quite make it, but nearly did. And uh, just I, never, I was never an atheist, but wasn't that interested, whereas my other three siblings didn't really sin and all followed Jesus, and it was all wonderful, whereas I got in lots of trouble a lot. And... My mum and dad moved to America when I was 17, and then I really went for it, and uh, went for it with sinning, let's say. And then uh, on my 18th birthday party, I nearly died. I tried to drink 18 pints of beer, and it nearly finished me off. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and uh, my best friend woke up five times in the night to clear vomit out of my mouth, and the next morning I got up, I went and sat on a park bench on my own, gave my life to Jesus. Because it was like I tried that, hadn't worked, and I knew Jesus was real. And there, were no, there was no mood music, there was no one there, there was none of that. I just surrendered my life to Jesus. Then I said to the Lord, I'll go wherever, whatever, and whenever for you. A prayer at times I've regretted, but I've always tried to live. And there was no baby Christian years, because I had this sort of Christian background where you, you had all of that. But it was all quite dramatic, really. The hardest people to tell with my parents, because even when it's the meaning behind the universe, you don't want your parents to be right. And, <laughs> but it was, it was amazing, really. Um... I'm just thinking of people who may be listening to this, who are Christians, they've mm. got kids growing up. Um, what advice would you give to them for their kids? No, I mean, obviously, your, your father, grandfather, well-known Christian. Mm. So, in a sense, people would expect you to be a Christian. Mm. But what you're saying is, actually, that wasn't real until later on. Yeah. How, 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 as parents, could we, can we deal with that? What advice would you give mm. to parents... Uh, mm. in that situation I only ask that because I have three sons and you know I've been there myself mm. but mm. Um, the number one thing is to pray my parents asked a number of people to pray for me every day once I, I got banned from church when I was 14 I should have thrown that in I remember, even my mum couldn't make me go I got banned for six months 
And, uh, <laughs> you really were a bad lad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my parents asked a number of people to pray every day I'd come back to faith. And when I did, they told me about this. I got to write to those people. They got to write back. But we underestimate praying. We need to pray every day. So, so if you're a Christian parent and your kids aren't quite where you want them to be, ask five of your friends to commit to you by praying by name for that child to come back to faith. Because sometimes for you, you run out of reservoirs of hope and get some people to really stand with you in that. It's really practical. Then as a church, we've got to do better with nonconformist kids. So I struggled in church because unless you were quiet, nice and, and good and smiley, you didn't fit in. And the problem with that is, is everything everyone loves about me as a man in the church, they hated about me as a teenager. Because the fact I was brave, the fact I was bold, the fact I would go against the status quo, the fact I would call people out and stuff, all the things they love now. So, so Christians love it that you're brave enough to go on a BBC or you're evangelistic, you do an appeal or whatever. That's just redeemed rebelliousness. <laughs> but when it was unredeemed, it was the exact thing that people tried to push me away from church over. So I think we've got to learn better how to work with the difficult kids too. Because people say to me, where are the Christian leaders your age? And I tend to think, well, they kind of left the church when they're 15. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Now, you, you studied theology. Mm. Um, was that always going to happen? Ah, no, no, no. <laughs> no. Um, I think that the other three of my siblings maybe, and then I would have just tried to avoid prison. I think that was probably <laughs> the, the view. But um, God made it clear. I had a place at university to sports science. I was going to continue as a semi-pro footballer and do that. But then uh, after my conversion, because I came to faith November the 9th, 1997, and I started Bible college September 98. So um, it was all very dramatic. God was very clear with me. I didn't want to go to the London Bible College as it was at the time, but that's where God made it quite clear I was supposed to go to, because my granddad used to be principal there, and my parents had met there. So it's talk about going back into that bubble. But in the end, if you say wherever, whatever, whenever to God, you go do it. So what people saw in some ways as obvious to me was the hardest thing. Yeah. So how old were you when you went off to? 18. You were 18. And mm. there three years, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Met my wife there. She's surprisingly pretty. And uh, we got married at the end of our time there. And uh, yeah, everything's totally different now. But it and happened. what happened? Where did the Lord lead you having left college? Uh, went to work for Youth for Christ. Um, at the time I didn't realise I had such an evangelistic passion to be honest I'd only recently been salvaged myself <laughs> yes. um, but Youth for Christ we very clearly were led there um, and, and my wife and I did a job share overseeing a gap year where she pastorally cared for people and I recruited them kind of worked quite well and uh, in the first couple of years there just hearts were broken for evangelism spent time at Bible college where I fell in love with the Bible but I then joined Youth for Christ where I realised actually you can communicate as who you are because Bible college tends to produce people that all want to be Bible expositors. To be honest, that's not me. I can make people laugh. Most Bible expositors I know can't make people laugh. It's a different <laughs> skill set. And I realised that I could communicate through my personality whilst also being faithful to the Word of God. Because evangelists mustn't just preach hot air. It's got to be rooted in Scripture. But it's a different way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your work with Youth for Christ. You were there for 10 years? 14 years. 14 years. Yeah, I did a long time. did two years overseeing a gap year programme. Then when I was 23, I became the youngest ever director overseeing the church's work. That was God was very clear on that. That was ridiculous. Went into the office as a 23-year-old in a suit. Everyone looks at me like, what are you here for? And I, the director interviews. And it was, that, was, that was a brave moment. But I did that for six years. Then for six years, I uh, led you for Christ at the end. And that was fun. To go from Roy Crown, my great mentor and hero, who developed me, grew me. And at 29, I took on leading the biggest youth organisation in the country. Baptism of fire, but amazing. In the first year of that... Um, we had real problems with our second child. My wife and I were told we could never have kids. We've now got two. We also we lost one in, in the womb. 
But um, the first year leading Youth for Christ at 29, we had our son, who at 18 weeks in the womb was told he had a 5% chance of survival. Had nine blood transfusions in the womb. My wife was in hospital every other day. He was born 10 weeks early. He's fine now. But he had this intense year beyond anything I ever thought I'd experience. But you know what? God ministers through brokenness. And uh, it was really good. How did he do that in that time? I mean, did you question God in that time? Or did you, how did you, what was God maybe teaching you or showing mm. you or revealing to you mm. at that very difficult time? Mm. I mean, the life lesson goes before that because our daughter's three and a half years old and our son. And a year before she was born, we were told we couldn't have kids. And it was me. I was the problem. Now, until that, I was, uh, my biggest weakness was an unawareness of any weaknesses. And actually, when you realise, not that you're bad, but God's amazing, and you just walk gently with him, even though you don't know what you can do, that's quite good for you. I also think you learn to cling on to Jesus. So these transfusions would happen in the womb. Amazing, from 18 weeks, swap half the blood. Two donors on the list in the whole country with the right blood. It was all very, very dramatic. Cambridge University studied us for it. It was all very dramatic. But um, after the first one of these... I sat by Anne's bed for three hours because they would do the transfusion. Then she'd have to sleep for three hours. And if the baby's moving in the womb, we fight another day. Because it's all intervention. There's no cure. And so I sat by her bed and I felt compelled to pray a prayer out loud as she slept. I said, Lord Jesus, if this baby lives, you're good. And if this baby dies, you're still good. Either way, somehow I'm going to get up tomorrow and say you're good. Prayed that each of the nine transfusions. And I'll be honest, it, um, that was the lesson. God is good in the sun and the rain. And I think people have got to realise Christianity is not a Disney princess film where everything lives happily ever after and perfect. Jesus promises to always be with you. He doesn't promise that everything will always be colourful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you were... Um, what were some of the things that you saw God do as your time with Youth for Christ mm. uh, with young people? Um, and what, what were you most sort of thankful to God for, for what you saw? Yeah. I saw loads of young people give their lives to Jesus. And actually, what I'm most thankful for now, it's happened earlier today, I bumped into two people who gave their lives to Jesus, and I spoke. This is what happens, they're now adults. And in some ways, what I'm most thankful for is now bumping into people all over the place who've come to faith at things or been touched by something. Or, but, but the fact that you actually can make a difference in someone's life is, is ridiculously amazing. It's such a privilege and an honour. I also think we innovated a lot. We, did, we worked in prisons, for example, and 76% of lads in prison re-offended in the first year. If, what, if Youth for Christ worked with them, it went down to 16%. Because they found Jesus. And so you saw these things turning around. You also, um, we managed to get a, a one-stop website called Our Request that provided the material needed for every key stage teaching a Christianity in schools throughout the country. It became the most used RE website in the country. We just produced it on a bit of a wing and a prayer. For two years in Alton Towers, we had a, a feature in Alton Towers called The Crux that was a spiritual experience for people, helping them encounter Jesus. These sort of things, amazing things, amazing things, amazing things. Also, I have a natural passion for the Bible. And we were able to do all kinds of Bible reading materials with CWR. We had a strategic partnership where we'd ask to do anything anything we did it so we had all kinds of things along the journey my biggest joy was that my biggest disappointment was we didn't see the youth revival i hoped for but there's still time <laughs> yeah well that, that sounds incredible um how did you come to be working at the uh, evangelical alliance yeah. and, and tell us a little bit about your work with the year now there's a story because evangelical alliance was the place i least wanted to work in the uk because my dad and my granddad had both been ahead of it in there, probably in its 170 years, the two most successful times as well. So there's a certain pressure. But um, what happened was, it was about, uh, about four years ago now, God got on my case. And um, I had two prophetic words in two months from people saying, God wants to use you across all the age groups. You're not just an evangelist to young people. He wants to grow your influence to work across a wider perspective. Get ready, you're leaving you for Christ soon. 
And of these two, I thought, I didn't want to leave, so that's okay. Then a third one happened, and my wife Anne was there. She's like, wow, that's amazing. Have you heard anything like this before? I got in trouble. <laughs> but then, we were like, then it happened another, the next month. And three of these were people I don't know. And so you're like, wow, God's really being clear. I'm like, okay. And then we were on a holiday, and Anne said to me, you're too safe, you're too comfortable, and you're too popular. And God never made you any of those things. And there was a sense that after 14 years in Youth for Christ, I was Youth for Christ man and boy. I was in charge. It was working a certain way. Things were great. But actually, I was too safe, too comfortable, and too popular. And then um, this role came up with the EA as head of mission. And I was like, no, no way am I looking at that. And after seven or eight people were on it, God was just clear. I went on a run. And I just felt God challenge my pride and just say, you're only not going there because of people that no one thinks about anymore in association with it anyway. What are you doing? So I threw my hat in the ring. And, it became, and I tried really hard not to get the job. I basically argued I want to keep the evangel and evangelical. I want to be a good news person. Um, you haven't got any evangelists here. What are you doing? What's happening? And in the end, it was just so profoundly clear. You stop fighting. You get on with it. That prayer came back to me, wherever, whatever, whenever. You can't pray that at 18 and not live it at 35 as I was at the time. So I delivered it. And then my work there, it's amazing. I get to do anything that encourages the church to reach lost people. So I do a lot of evangelistic speaking. I do a lot of encouraging people. But I also, we've produced something called greatcommission.co.uk, which is a one-stop evangelistic hub, providing videos of people's testimonies and blog articles to inspire you, prayer stuff. And then basically all the resources we can find in the evangelical world that work well on reaching anyone are there in one place. You can search by them, find them all. But you can, you can build up boards so that you could, for example, if you were going to develop a new youth strategy, I wish we'd had this at YFC, you can search young people. It shows you all the resources that work. You build them on a board. You get in a URL. You email it around your team. You say, next week we're looking at this to decide what to do. It's everything in one place, serving the church and individuals to reach this nation. We need to connect with you on that separately. As, we do. As if a you, ministry, actually. If you've got anything yeah. that helps lead people to Jesus and it's evangelistic and it's not on there, it should be on there. And anyone listening to this, if you've got stuff, that's, or, or if you're doing something in your community no one's heard of, tell us about it. We'll write it up. We'll stick it on there. We've provided the ultimate scaffolding. Yeah on which to put anything that helps Christians reach lost people in the UK, send it to us, we'll put it on there. Awesome, wonderful. Now, you obviously um, do a lot of travelling across mm. the UK, public speaking, connecting with different churches and all different settings. Um, what is your impression of the spiritual state of our nation at the moment? Because you've probably got quite a good insight into that with the, with the work that you're doing, uh, both with the EA and your yeah. travelling. How would you describe that at this particular mm. time? I think within the church... There's a desperation. And that desperation is leading people to say, do we need to be more evangelistic? So I'd love to say there'd been some great epiphany by which everyone had realised that the Great Commission is what the church is called to, but I think there's a desperation within the church. And so people are, are desperate to be helped. I think outside of the church, there's a growing desire for something more. Now, they may not be looking for your brand of church, but there's a growing desire for something more because the secular stuff doesn't, doesn't live up to it, what it says it will. Uh, being famous isn't the dream everyone thought it was. Fern, Fern Cotton was interviewed recently. She said, the only difference when you're famous is people come up to you in the street when you want to be left alone and say hello. You know, and the, this narcissistic social media world doesn't, in the end, the, no matter how many likes you get, you still want more. There's, there is this hole in everyone's hearts, as Pascal talked about all that time ago. And I do think there's a desire for more. Russell Brown says that we're on the edge of a spiritual revolution. And I do think we are on the edge of a spiritual revolution. I think at the same time, it's getting chillier out there towards Christianity. And so what we need to do is talk about Jesus more. Because you can talk about Jesus. People are intrigued by Jesus. They're put off sometimes by Christianity. Absolutely. And so we need to talk about Jesus more. And we point people towards the relationship. And then we can talk about rules as we go along too, because they matter. 
But I think the church needs to talk about Jesus more because people are hungry to hear about Jesus. I don't know anyone that's not, that's not fascinated to some level in the, in the Jesus story. And so you can find your hook there. If you're coming in straight away with, if you come to my church, you can't do this, 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 and this. Well, all the best. But if we talk about Jesus, we've got a real chance to make an impact. Amen. Amen. I, um, recently, I've been, I've been challenging people about that very thing. You know, go and check out Jesus. And I defy you to have a problem with Jesus. Come back and tell me what problem you've got yeah. with Jesus. Because you won't find one. Yeah. You know, and I think, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, although, although, I'll be honest, I think a lot of Christians listening to this will find lots of problems with Jesus. Because it will go against what they want to do. We've got too comfortable. Get back to the Jesus story and then try and be comfortable. It doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. But you sense there are, there is hope for our nation. Uh, there are things that are going on that you see that encourage you oh, in terms of um, what's going on across Christianity in our nation, despite hugely. what we may hear in the media. No, hugely. What... I mean, the media, what's the media know? I mean, they, they mix up evangelical and evangelistic every other day anyway. They don't, they don't really know what's going on, do they? I mean, there's, um, there's two things that have really particularly encouraged me this year. Firstly, the unity going on across the festivals and things. 30 Christian festivals, 120,000 people saying, we are one that the world might know that there is a saviour and he's called Jesus. That kind of unity, it's a once in a generation time, that. The other thing, I've seen more people come to faith in the last year than any year I've been in ministry. 86% of people who come to faith in the UK are under 25. In the last year, they've nearly all been adults because I work more with adults now than kids. So I've seen more people make a first-time decision for Jesus in the last 12 months than any 12-month period I was at Youth for Christ. So God's on the move. Things are happening. And my number one tip to Christians, ask people. I don't think we ask enough. Um, I, I see sometimes the gospel ask is a bit like asking girls out when you're a teenager. You assume they'll say no, but on the off chance they might say yes, you, you ask. And I think we just need to have a bit more confidence in it and be prepared to ask. I'm going to churches and seeing six, seven people making a first-time commitment. Pastor says afterwards, I didn't know that that would happen. I say, when did you last ask? Gulp. You know, we've got to ask. Yeah. If nothing happens, that's fine. Yeah. But much better to ask and nothing happen than not ask when something could happen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, how has being a dad shaped your theology, your understanding of the Lord? Yeah, it, it shapes everything in some ways. Firstly, you can't help but love God more. Secondly, you're in awe of creation. Thirdly, I'll be honest, it, it's affected, um, when you have a daughter, it's hard to, and then a son, it's hard to have some of the views you might have had as gender stereotypes at other times when you see them as your kids and you just want them both to totally flourish. But I think also it's giving you a new passion for God's word. We read the Bible our kids every day. There's no, there's just no discussion. I, I, in fact, I'll be quite hard on this. I don't understand Christian parents who don't pray with their kids and read the Bible. When your kids are under 12, read the Bible, pray every day. Otherwise, what happens is you moan about the youth worker who hasn't done in one hour a week what you haven't done in 15 years. We need to get serious about this. Mm. But reading the Bible our kids is fascinating because they ask questions about things we've, we've accepted. And I've actually found that I've had to engage with some of the, particularly some of the Old Testament narrative. My son's like, well, how come that person just murdered that person? Or how come that's okay? Or how come that's... And it makes you re-engage in a new way. And what we've decided to do very much, we started with the um, Sally Lloyd-Jones Jesus Storybook Bible, which is amazing. If anyone's not used that, do use that. But then we decided that it wasn't okay that as two theology graduates, because my wife and I are both ordained and both got theology degrees, and it's not okay that we're only doing the nice bits with our kids. So we decided to tackle the whole so we do this thing called the candle bible and it does every it does the whole thing in a year and we're taking on the whole thing because we think it's really important in our kids that they learn to engage with it and and 
embrace it at a young age and also learn to live with questions. Because I don't know about you, but too many people sort of pretend there's no questions, but then you face a glass stick, it's going to snap quick. I've got loads of questions for God. Loads about some of the Old Testament and silly ones too. Why does Lot's wife become a pillar of salt, not a pillar of pepper? I want to know. <laughs> and so it's really helped in that sense. And, and seeing, seeing Christianity through the eyes of children reminds you a little what childlike faith should be. Now, you've talked about the Bible. Mm. Um, as a ministry, our heart is to equip people to study God's word. Um, why is the Bible important to you? <laughs> it's Other than my personal relationship with Jesus, it's the most important thing to my walk with the Lord. It, it, it's transformative. It, it tells you so much of what did happen so you can understand things now. For years, kids used to wear the WWJD bracelets. Well, how would you know what Jesus did, would do unless you don't know what he did do. It, it tells the story of, of so much of our history, but also it gives me the defining moral position for everything I have. Everything is read through scripture. You don't, you don't say, how do I make scripture fit with my culture? You say, how do I change my culture through the truth of the Bible? And I think we've got a problem where people aren't seeing the Bible for what it is in the same way anymore. We also, for me, um, it's just life-giving. And it's, it gives an opportunity as well to stand on the shoulders of some of the giants who've come before. And what I love the most is how the whole thing fits together. I never quite understand why people say, well, you know, I'm only really into the red letters in the New Testament. It doesn't make any sense. Because that all builds on the Old Testament. The amount Jesus quotes the Old Testament is insane. The amount of prophecies fulfilled indirectly and directly. And, and, I love, and I love that journey. At the same time, there are bits that are harder. There are moments when you're in Chronicles and you're thinking, I'm looking forward to moving on. But, you know, nonetheless, you, you press on, don't you? Yeah, and how do you go about studying it yourself? Hmm. How, how does that look for you? Because obviously people do that in different ways. Maybe you maybe have different seasons of doing it different ways. How do you how do you engage with the Word of God practically? Yeah, I mean, I do the one year Bible every other year, but not every year because I find it 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 can eat away at you a little bit because you're fighting against the date, not against what's being said. But at the same time, I want to get to the end of my life and have read it you know, sort of half the years I've been alive. So thinking I've read the whole Bible 40 times or something. Um, but what I, the most important thing to me as a preacher is to read it from a different version in my devotions to what I preach from and a different book. So literally I've got two Bibles going. So I've got an NIV to preach from and a new living for my devotional life. And it's just so that it doesn't feel like my job because I found because I speak so much that you can always be looking for a sermon. But I need to psychologically feel that actually this is devotional time. This is the devotional Bible. This is the work one. Now, I know that might, to some people that might sound strange, but I have to separate that in my life. Then, it's a case of, I like to work through a book. I don't understand this pick and mix, because that's not what it was intended to do. So I like to, I, I don't do two chapters here and then move on to another book, or I don't do, or what do I feel like reading? I, I, I will work through a book at any given time, so I'm just doing Philippians at the moment. And then every so often, there'll be something that will help me. So like a friend of mine, Michael Jazz, has done these, uh, Be Still and Know I Am God devotionals. They're really simple, but I'm not very good at being still. So every so often you, you top something up. I see it a bit like tithing as a discipline. Daily Bible reading, standard, in the same way that 10% is standard. Then something comes along where you're more generous, you're like, I'll give something else. So I've got my Bible reading discipline in, but then over and above that, other things come along. And, and in your travelling, you, do you take the time as you're travelling to, to do study or listen yeah. uh, as you're doing that as well? Because to redeem the time, yeah. obviously. Well, how can uh, you... Um, in the car... I spend a lot of time quiet talking to the Lord, but I don't drive much anymore. When I was at Youth for Christ, I did 30,000 miles a year. Now that I'm at the EA, everyone wants to meet you in London. So you, uh, you travel <laughs> for when you're preaching. 
And then I'll be honest, a lot of that is devotional life, preparing yourself for what you're doing. The main thing for my um, prayer life with the Lord is running. I run every other day, about six and a half, seven miles each time. And for the first mile, I get myself sorted. Enough in my ears. I don't understand people with stuff in their ears. Then I say to the Lord, all right, you've got 50 minutes. What do you want to say? And I let God speak to me. Because about mm, three or four years ago, my pastor took me out and he, he takes me out for coffee. And he says, I think you're a gifted man, but are you a holy man? I was like, whoa. He says, um, when do you spend time in silence? He says, you've got such a big mouth, you're always using it. When do you spend time in silence? And we talked. And he said, you need to sit still in a chair. He sits still in a chair every day for half an hour. I said, I can't do that. I'll fall asleep. I'm like the Duracell bunny, right? I could be anyone for energy. I left my house at 5.30 this morning. I'll get home at 1 in the morning, right? That's okay. I can do that every so often. But if I stop moving, I'm asleep. If I stop doing something, sit in a chair, gone, right? Not, not a car seat. Sit in a chair, gone. And so it doesn't work. So I tried playing golf on my own. That didn't work. So my golf game was awful. But I started running and just sort of saying to the Lord, well, what do you want to say? It's changed my life. He'll bring someone to mind you'll end up praying for you weren't thinking of. You'll text them later. But how did you know? Well, us holy people, you know. Or, or I run so slowly. You'll run past a tree. You'll think, whoever made that, you know, I, I need to know them better. Or, or something will come to It's always something. So much so when I injured my back about a year ago, I injured it for six weeks. I was going walking at five in the morning because I didn't know how I could get through my ministry without that time. So, so not just the habit of reading the Bible, but the habit of being quiet before God so he can speak. Most of us don't do conversation with God. We do monologue. And I don't want to just ask him for what I want. So these disciplines, they're all a journey. So I've got those, the Bible reading and the quietness is kind of there. So what's the next one now? It's probably fasting, actually. I'm not very good at that. So there's always more, there's always more, there's always more. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a uh, favourite Bible book or favourite Bible character at all? Hmm. I've got, there's a number of things I, I particularly like. If, if, my actual out-and-out favourite book is definitely the book of John. Because when I met Jesus, I didn't know the book of John. I knew the Sunday stories. So I knew all the Sunday school stories that you find in the synoptics. And the first book I read was the book of John, and it just changed my life. And in John, you've got theology where in the others, you know, and it just changed my life. But characters, there's just loads. All of them. My wife and I, the next few weeks, doing a bit of Bible teaching. We're doing it on being distinct in your culture. Looking at Daniel and Esther and Hannah and Elijah. And, and that's just wow. So there's loads of characters. Although the character I most like in the Bible is Andrew. Because Andrew, the disciple, was only mentioned five times. But he's just transformative. Because I think he's the one who's most normal. There's lots of other disciples mentioned loads. But, you know, it's Andrew who gets his brother. It's Andrew who doesn't compare himself to his brother. You know, it's Andrew who brings the little boys' pat lunch to Jesus at a feeding of 5,000. It's Andrew and Philip who get the Greeks and bring them to Jesus. You know, Andrew does, he does all these, there's four or five little things. But that's it. But he's, the, he's described by William Barclay as the man with the missionary heart. And he kind of, I just relate to him quite a lot. Yeah. And Bible verses, it's been the same for years. Romans 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that would be it. Although I don't, um, I think Bible verses are interesting because this is something in the Bible that I feel quite passionate about. I think the memory verse is kind of yesterday's way of teaching the Bible to people. I think now we need to describe how it looks, how it smells, how it sounds, how it feels. If you want me to elaborate on that. So um, when Jesus says Lazarus come out, why does he say Lazarus come out? Because there's 15 dead people in the tomb. If he just had come out, 15 dead people would have walked out at once. Scooby-Doo moment, all the corpses at once. Can you imagine if Lazarus was a common name and there were three of them? Not you, son, not you on that one. You know, <laughs> what we've got to do with younger generations is tell people what it looks like. We're living in a visual age. When the sea splits, when Moses is by it, if there's a killer whale in the middle, does that split? Or when Jesus with the feeding of the 5,000, Andrew brings that little boy's pat lunch to Jesus. You know, that little boy's pat lunch was terrible. 
It's barley loaves, bread of the poor, sardines, it's 40 degrees, stinking fish. We also know it's terrible because a young lad, young lads eat anything. He looks at it and goes, I don't fancy it, give it to Jesus. Jesus <laughs> takes it, feeds the whole thing. Make it alive. What we've got to do is, is help people understand what it looks, sounds and smells like. What we used to do, modernism was about what does it say? Now what it says still really matters. But what it looks like, we don't paint that picture enough. When, um, when Jesus is, rises from the dead, right? When Jesus rises from the dead in John, what's the first thing he does? Folds up the dirty washing. So Jesus rises from the dead, there's two sheets, he folds one up. Mary raised him well, right? Then at some point he thinks, hang on, I'm the saviour of the world. I ought to get out there and see people. Puts the sheet down, leaves the other one, off he goes. There's these little visual things. We need to bring them to life for people. It's why um, every time Hollywood does a film or a Bible TV series or something, Christians moan, moan, moan. The content's awful. This is dreadful. The Noah film was rubbish. The youth worker in me, the evangelist in me loves it. Because when that Bible TV series came out all those years ago on Channel 5, my youth group would watch half of it, then I'd read them the story. These were non-Christians. We wouldn't have got them into the story without the screen. I couldn't care less how badly they depict it. If Hollywood want to spend their money depicting it badly, bring people into the story. That's what they're doing. And I think we live in a visual age. And when it comes to our sharing of the Bible, when it comes to our preaching, when it comes to our communication, we need to be more visual. Wonderful. Gavin, hmm. it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been great. And um, I just want to... Pray that God will continue to use you, Thank you. in this nation and uh, to bring people to Jesus. Because I know that's on your heart. It's on our heart as thank well. You. And uh, safe travels. And uh, thank you for joining us today. No problem. God bless. You have been listening to The Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries UK. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button now and consider leaving us a rating or review. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry, or make a donation, visit www.precept.org.uk or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at PreceptMinUK.